Do any of you have hobbies? Some of you have hobbies. Okay. Are, are any of them strange hobbies? I don't know if you would call this a hobby or if this is just a, a mental breakdown, but some people like to visit cemeteries. And they like to look at the monuments uh, and, and look at the names and see the, if there's an inscription written about an individual. And then you, you generally have the, the dates of their birth and their death separated by that little line. And you've heard people say that little line represents your entire life, that, that little segment there. The monument itself is really something that is usually put in place by family members or by close friends who want you to be able to look back upon the life of that individual and, and understand that that life had an impact and that that person had lived, but now from this earth they are, they are gone. A memorial, something to remember. We set up memorials like that in different areas um, around the world where battles have been fought. I, I used to live, uh, I was actually born in southeastern Pennsylvania, not far from Valley Forge. And if you would drive down into Valley Forge, you would see monuments that had been erected to recognize not only the battles that were being fought in that area, but also those that had given up their lives and, and died. Uh, and so the, there would be a, a memorial, a memory that you would have about those people. And it, it forced you to think about what we enjoy today because of what they were willing to give up and to sacrifice. We, we have special days. We, we set aside a memorial day uh, in which we remember those who have paid a, a great sacrifice uh, for our freedom and for the things that we enjoy today. And, and there are a whole variety of different things that we set up as memorials. Sometimes the memorial takes us back. Sometimes that same memorial will help us think of what is happening right now. And there are occasions in which these memorials will look to the future and they will tell us about things to come. All three of those elements are found in the feasts and the offerings and the sacrifices and the special celebrations that were observed by the children of Israel. Would you once again return in your Bibles to Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, and I want you to look with me as the Lord gives us here a listing of seven annual events that are designed for the purpose of calling our minds and our attention to things that God had done for the children of Israel, what he was doing for them at the present time, and that which they could still look forward to because of promises that God had given to the people of Israel. And so they, they look at each one of these seven events with an eye to remember, to appreciate, and to anticipate. And the seven memorials, as it were, are listed for us beginning there at verse 4. And as we began to read through this, we began to see what each of these meant to the people of Israel. The first that we're introduced to there in verse 4 is this uh, celebration of the Passover. It was done on the first 
in the first month, which was uh, known at the time as Abib. Later, that, that month's name changed to Nisan. And it's observed on the, the 14th day of that first month as a memorial to what God did for the children of Israel in delivering them from bondage in Egypt. And so what, what you had was this event taking place at sunset, at the time of the sun going down, which was the beginning of a new day for an Israelite. So on this first day, or pardon me, this 14th day of the first month, the people of Israel were to observe as an abiding remembrance of what God did for them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And you'll remember how they had spent over 400 years in Egypt, initially having gone down there in order to escape the, the uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The famine. Thank you. Always have trouble with those tough words. Famine. <laughs> to escape the famine that had occurred. And uh, you, you recall how Joseph brought his family down. And then the years had passed, and the children of Israel had grown to the point where they became a threat to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians enslaved them. And God, hearing the cries of the people of Israel, provided deliverance for them through a series of, of uh, plagues that had come upon the, the people of Egypt. And there were 10 of those plagues and the final plague being the, the plague of the death of the firstborn. And the children of Israel had been given instructions that the way to escape the infliction of death would be to take a lamb that was perfect, perfect as a lamb could be, to sacrifice it, to take its blood, and to take hyssop and apply the blood to the sides of the door and to the lintel over the top, and then to have everyone in the family gather around the meal, the Passover meal, where they would roast the lamb, and they would eat bitter herbs, and and they would drink wine in a succession of events that were designed to help the people of Israel understand what it was that God did for them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And as you'll recall, the death angel passed through Egypt and wherever the blood had not been applied. Now, those of you who are older will remember one of the old hymns, which I'm not going to sing. When I see the blood... I will pass over you. Well, that song was written in commemoration of this event where the children of Israel were spared because of the application of the blood and the people of Egypt who did not apply the blood lost the firstborn of every child, the firstborn child in every family, the firstborn of their animals, their livestock, and the Bible tells us that there was not one home in Egypt that had not been affected by this death. Children of Israel are set free, and God had given them instructions concerning that freedom. 
which led to the second of the observances that they were called upon to become involved in. And you'll notice there following verse 4, it tells us in verse 5 that something was going to take place following this Passover, verse 6, on the 15th day of the same month. In other words, by the next morning, the next event was taking place, which was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Lord established that feast following the Passover as a memorial to the type of bread that God instructed the Israelites to take with them as they were now fleeing out of Egypt. And they were to leave all of the leaven of Egypt behind. Now, we understand this, that through the scriptures, leaven is often representative of sin and the way sin spreads. The, the reason why you deal with sin, and sometimes you have to deal with it with, uh, with pretty strong results. You, you have to take a strong stand because if you don't, that, that little leaven begins to spread through the whole lump. Uh, it happens in churches. It happens in family lives. If you don't deal with the sin, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the Lord said, no, you, you leave the leaven of Egypt behind. But it was more than just the, the emblem of sin. It was, it was a representation to the people of Israel that the old life that they had before was now being left behind because they would still use leaven, but not the leaven of... From Egypt, they would still bake their bread with leaven in it. In fact, you're going to see, if if you read through the entire chapter here in Leviticus 23, there are two loaves that will be baked specifically with leaven, but not with the old leaven of Egypt, but with the new leaven, the new life that God had brought them to as he delivered them. So you have this feast of unleavened bread that's taking place. And as you read down through verse 8, what you begin to find is that the morning after the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, this sacrifice uh, that was offered the night before would be followed by this feast of unleavened bread. And they would demonstrate through the participation in that the haste with which the children of Israel had to flee from their bondage into new life. There's a third that's introduced to us down there beginning at verse 9. And it's the Feast of First Fruits. And this, this was somewhat, I, I guess we would call it a Thanksgiving feast because it was recognition of an early harvest. Now, I don't know a whole lot about the agricultural events as they unfold in the Middle East, but the way the Lord points this out to us, he gives us an idea of how things come to maturity. Early in the growing season, the barley reaches maturity very quickly. And as a memorial of God's faithfulness in providing for the children of Israel, they are to observe this feast of first fruits in which the first harvest of barley would be brought before the Lord and offered in sacrifice to him, a wave offering that ultimately would be given to him. And the instruction was, don't eat anything from the first harvest until that is offered first. Do you understand how the Lord was helping the people of Israel to understand something? 
I'm the one that supplies your needs. And if you stop recognizing that, you fail to embrace the truths of what I have taught you. You cannot depend upon yourselves. You have to depend upon me. And as you make this first offering to me, you are basically telling me, I am trusting you for the rest of the harvest that will come. And so you read there, beginning at verse 9, and as you go down through the remainder of that particular passage, you read about the first fruits of this barley harvest. And this, this actually, in our, uh, the way we break down our calendar, we, we operate uh, differently than the, uh, the Israelis do. They, they operate on a lunar year. Um, we, we operate on a, a very different type of calendar. As a result of that, we have to have a leap year and all this other stuff that, that comes along with that. But in our reckoning, this, these three events would take place in the months of March and April. Now, we're very familiar with the idea of the Passover coming in March because our Easter celebration is tied to that time of year. And you remember how Christ was crucified at the time of the Passover. And they wanted him down from the cross before the, the Passover night would begin. And so we have a, a time reference here and, a, and a, a way in which we can take a look at this. And the Lord says, now when you offer this sacrifice, you make sure that it is a dedicated offering to me and don't eat until after you've done that. And then you can start to take for yourself. From that point, 50 days would be marked off, which lead us to the next of the feasts, beginning there in verse 15. Now, if your Bible has like a little divider there, it probably says something like this, the Feast of Weeks. Or, uh, I I don't know if any of the Bibles put this, but from from our point of view, we, we call this the Day of Pentecost. And the, the Jews in Israel at the time of, of uh, following Christ's crucifixion, they would recognize this as Pentecost, 50 days following that Feast of First Fruits. And what you find there is in this 50-day period that would follow, this would put us somewhere in May and June, depending on the, the timing of the uh, Passover. And it would also be a feast that would celebrate a harvest. And this would be the early summer wheat harvest. So once again, the people of Israel are reminded, I am the one who provides for you. And now that the early wheat harvest has come, you are seeing once again my faithfulness to provide for you. But something interesting happens in this harvest. It is instructed, the the, the people of Israel are instructed, that when they take their harvest itself, they are not to cut in the corners of their fields. And anything that falls in the process of the harvest, they are to leave it there. Because God is looking out for the needs of the people who do not have the same means that the landowners had. And now they would be able to go into the fields and they would be able to glean in the corners of the fields and they would be able to take of the the wheat that had been dropped in the process of the harvest. And there were those that were uh, kind, loving individuals who would see to it that significant, significant amounts of the wheat would be left behind. 
so that the poor and the people that were on the outside could come in and enjoy the bounty of what the Lord had provided. And so at this feast of weeks, this Pentecost, there is a definite mark that takes place. At this point now, the wheat harvest is over. But there is still more that is going to take place that follows. Notice down at verse 23, we have what is called the Feast of Trumpets. And according to our dating today, that feast would fall somewhere in September or October. So what's going to happen is in the days ahead, as you have Jewish friends who are going to be celebrating their high holy days, some of them are going to be celebrating an event called Rosh Hashanah. Now, have you heard, have you all, are you familiar with Rosh Hashanah? That's the the Jewish New Year. Now, when we describe this as the Jewish New Year, it does not mean that this is the beginning of the first month. There's an unusual way of of their calendar recognition that I'm, I'm not going to get into. But for the Jewish mind, the Rosh Hashanah is a celebration that takes place in the seventh month. And now the final harvest is reaped. And that is reaped in preparation for the rainy season that is going to begin following the final harvest. Now, this I do know uh, from, from living uh, in, in a farm area. When, when the rain begins, the harvest can be ruined. And you, you've got to get that harvest in before the rain comes because once that starts, then it creates a real problem as far as harvesting and, and even trying to maintain the integrity of that which is harvested. Things begin to rot because of the rain and, and a whole variety of different negative things happen. So the Israelite knows now is the time for us to bring in the final harvest of all the things that we've grown. God has provided for us faithfully. And now the rains, the winter rains are going to begin and the whole new process, a whole new season will begin to take place. This day now becomes a day of rest. There's to be no occupational work done. Special offerings were to be sacrificed. And there is a blowing of the trumpets so that the people of Israel now are called together to celebrate this final feast of harvest. Then, as you go down further, you'll notice in verse 26, one of the highest holy days that the Israelites would ever observe, the Day of Atonement. This would be the tenth day of the seventh month, which likewise would occur sometime in September or October. And you again will, if you know anyone of a a Jewish background, you're going to recognize they will be observing this day and they call it Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And this day was a day in which sacrifices were to be offered that would atone temporarily for the sins of the people. As a matter of fact, they couldn't really atone for the sins of the people. They could only indicate that ultimately an atonement sacrifice was going to be given. Consequently, the sins of the people could only be covered by the blood of the animals that were sacrificed. They could not be cleansed until the coming of the perfect lamb. 
And now our sins can be cleansed. That's another story. I want to get off on that, but we'll wait. On this Day of Atonement, this Yom Kippur, there would once again be a sacred assembly, and the people were to go through. Uh, you, you, when we read this, you, read, you, you saw how it said they would, uh, uh, their souls would be afflicted. Do you remember that? Where it said their souls were afflicted. What did that mean? It meant that for a period of 10 days, they were to examine their lives and evaluate their conduct in light of the holy standards that God had established in the law. And everyone would fall short. And so there were to be 10 days, essentially, of this anguish of soul because of the realization of the sinfulness of who they were and that they needed an atonement for their sins that would be able to bring them back into a right relationship with God. And so this Day of Atonement is such a high and holy day for the Israelites that they recognized it was an issue of dealing with their sins that later would be followed up with one final feast. And as you look at this, beginning at verse 33, you see that there is a Feast of Tabernacles. This was held between the 15th and the 21st day of the seventh month, also falling in September, October, depending on the time of the, uh, the Passover. And this was also called a Feast of Ingathering. And what it did, it celebrated God's protective care of the people of Israel for the period of time that they were wandering in the wilderness. They were, they were without the the homeland that God had promised them. Now, if any of you live near uh, a Jewish individual, or perhaps you might have a Jewish background, we lived right next, when we were in Michigan, we lived right next to a Jewish family. And every year they did something that was really interesting. I I would hear uh, poles rattling outside. And the, the father, the, the husband in the family would be outside and he would be putting these poles together. And before long, there was a structure that went up and then he took, it looked almost like bamboo rods. And he laid those across the top of this structure and then he took curtains and he put the curtains around the outside. And this became a representation of the little tents in which the children of Israel would dwell for that 40-year period until they would be regathered to the land that God had given to them. And so you had this event take place, the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was an expression by the Israelites, God protected us, in those years of wandering until that day that he led us safely into the land that he had promised us. Now we look at that and we say, oh, that's great. Um, Nice history lesson today. We look back and we say, well, if that's all he's got, I'm leaving kind of cold. That's not it. In every one of these events, God was communicating to us the realities of the ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic 
messages that were brought concerning the atonement, not only the atonement for our sins, but the promise of life, the promise of resurrection, the promise of gathering together to the Lord and spending all eternity with him. Would you follow along as we look at this? Let's go back and take a look at these different sacrifices that were offered. Uh, the first, uh, the, the um, uh, where did I go? Let me go here. All right, I'm getting there. Give me, give me a moment here. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. No, 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 I went too far. Is that it? Stop there. Okay, thank you all. <laughs> the Passover. We, we have this record of freedom. The children of Israel being delivered because of the Passover sacrifice. And the Apostle Paul wrote this when he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you, are tru- since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Peter went on to say this. He said in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Do you understand that when God set the people of Israel apart as a people chosen for his glory... He was already anticipating the reality of the church and what the sacrifices that Israel would make would mean to us. There was a perfect lamb, spotless, without sin, who would be sacrificed and would give his life, the life of God in the flesh with the infinite capability to pay the penalty of all of our sins. Did you ever stop to think how many sins you commit? It's a terrible thought. How many today? How many tomorrow? How many yesterday? And yet you take all of the people for whom Christ shed his blood, those that come to him and accept him as their savior, and he died to forgive Every one of those sins, because when you trust Christ as your Savior, the blood is applied to the sides and to the top. And when that condemning death angel comes and he sees the blood, he passes over us. He gives to us eternal life. And we shall never perish. Why? Because our Passover lamb, I'm not Jewish, but I had a Passover lamb that was sacrificed on my behalf whose blood doesn't cover my sins, whose blood cleanses my sins. By the way, just so you understand this, not only the sins I've already committed, but the sins I'm going to commit. Now, I need to stop on this for a moment because I continue to hear confusion about this issue. When Christ died for your sins, how many of your sins were yet future? All of them. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, did Christ forgive the sins that you had already committed? Yes, because from your point of view, those are now past. 
But from his point of view, they were already taken care of before you ever committed them, which says this, the sins you haven't committed yet have also been cared for which means you can't commit a sin that will remove you from the benefits of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Do you know what that means? We're secure in Christ. And it's not because of us. It's because of him. It's because of the greatness of his grace. It's because of the greatness of his love. It's because of the greatness of the power of the blood of Christ that cleanses all sins because you and I are going to fail and we're going to fall. But the blood of Christ cleanses from all sins. Therefore, don't you condemn yourself for your sins, but understand that through Christ they're forgiven... Get up and start living for the Savior and stop wallowing in the things you've done. Okay. Secondly, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Therefore, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now what the Lord is saying is this. When you, as New Testament believers in Christ, come to the Savior... You get a new life. What that means is this. If you profess faith in Christ and your life hasn't changed, you don't have Christ. It's that simple. You can't live the same way. Oh, can I accept Christ as my Savior? And then I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want. And hell, uh, uh, Christ is my fire escape from hell. No, if that's your thinking, you've never made the transition to new life. You've never been regenerated. Because here's the truth of the matter. When you trust Christ as Savior, the old leaven is left behind. And yes, there still will be failures and weaknesses because the old nature that still dwells within us. But now there is a new life in Christ. You have new desires. You have new goals. You have new purpose in life. Thanks. Oh, thank you, Warren. God bless you. Let's go on. Running out of time here. The third, Feast of First Fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. And we find here that conquering of death. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, who, who is in Adam? All of us. We are all in Adam. So we all have death in us. Even so in Christ, who's in Christ? 
those who have accepted him as their savior. And let's hope that everybody in this room can say, I am. And if you can't say it right now, you can say it right now. Thank you. The moment you say in your heart, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I am trusting him. I finally get it. I understand the first fruits, Christ, the first to be resurrected. And then he says this, because he is resurrected just like the barley. You remember the barley first gathered? The rest is going to follow. Notice what it goes on to say. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's not all, all, that's all in Christ shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Yeah, you got the barley. The first fruits of the barley, that's, that's God's. And then what happens? Then the rest of the, of the harvest comes. That's us. Glory. The fourth, Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit on that day. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The apostles who were following Christ now have the capability of the Holy Spirit to enable them to proclaim truths in languages that they had never learned because in that city of Jerusalem had gathered for this feast, for this day of Pentecost, God brought together devout individuals who probably under the Old Testament economy had already been saved, but something had to change. They now had to recognize that their salvation was not based upon accepting the promises that God had made, like Abraham did. Abraham believed God and it was counted them for righteousness. But now the, the focal point of their faith had to be redirected to the person of Christ. And they would turn away from the old, now accepting Christ as their savior, recognizing him. And on that day, thousands made that decision and recognized that the final, the perfect, the lamb of God had been sacrificed for them. Must go on. The next. The feast of of trumpets. Matthew 24 gives us information that is often confused. I I can only tell you this very quickly. I can't even tell you this. Matthew 24 and 25 deal with events not at the rapture, but at the second coming of Christ. Okay? If you believe that this is speaking of the rapture, you're in real trouble. You're going to have a terrible time putting it all together. But if you study Matthew 24 and 25, put it in its right context. It's the second coming of Christ. In Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
At the end of the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Folks, I'm sorry, I cannot finish all of this in, in the time that we have because we have something very important ourselves to observe today. This speaks to us about the regathering of the people of Israel following the tribulation. When we turn to that day of atonement, we are reminded once again that the national conversion of Israel is now based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said? All Israel will be saved. When will they be saved? They will be saved at the end of the tribulation when the remnant that remains all turn in faith and receive Christ as Savior. And then there will be the eternal bliss that comes along with this future blessing, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says this, For behold, I create new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I have created. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Every one of Israel's observances relate to us today. But now we have something that is specifically for us. It's a memorial. It's a table around which we gather to remember what has been done. This is my body, which is, some translations include the word broken, some do not include it, but we know the either way, the broken does not include the breaking of his bones, but the sacrifice of his body. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we look back, we think of what Christ did for us at the cross of Calvary. We realize the impact that that has on our lives right now. And then we continue reading where it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming. I hope you're ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and its truth. Take your word and appropriate it to our hearts and lives for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.